Welcome to episode 272 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Oil and gas super major Shell, the lead player in the $40 billion LNG Canada facility that's currently being built on Canada's west coast, recently released its 2024 LNG outlook. The outlook is kind of the Bible of global LNG prospects, and this year's edition contained a number of surprises. The 2040 demand forecast is down by up to 11%, and the company has officially predicted that demand will peak sometime in the 2040s. Now, regular listeners will remember uh, my episode, my interview with uh, Anne-Sophie Corbo of Columbia University in episode 250, where she predicted that it would be sometime in the 2030s, and I kind of got the impression it would be more early to mid-2030s. The IEA says that it will LNG uh, will peak in 2030. My takeaway from these conflicting views is that the LNG future is very uncertain, and it doesn't support the case for a big expansion of West Coast liquefaction, which Alberta Premier Danielle Smith is pushing hard for with the Canadian government. To review Shell's new report, I'm joined by Christopher Dolman, and he's based in Edmonton, He's the LNG gas specialist in Asia for U.S.-based Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. So welcome to the interview, Christopher. Uh, yeah, thank you, Mark. I'm happy to be here. I, uh, yeah, I'm humbled to be uh, included uh, with you know a lot of your uh, guests, including uh, Anna-Sophie Corbeau, who you mentioned before. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm not a regular listener, but I have listened to several episodes. So yeah, no, happy to be here and uh, share our views. Yeah, you're you're kind of our target market, Christopher. Uh, energy nerds, mm. folks, folks who want to know, you know, who want a global perspective, and mm. for for North American developments, but particularly Canadian developments. I don't think that uh, Canadians understand very well what's going on in Asia, and I keep hearing uh, analysts, uh, particularly those who are trying to, you know, sell stocks uh in oil and gas stocks and they keep talking about the amazing expansion of lng in in the u.s down in texas louisiana and in Qatar and all sorts of other places as if can and they say you know canada's missing out we should just do this exact same thing on the west coast we should have a bunch of lng uh cannabis and i keep bumping up against you know con conflicting uh, forecasts and and this is one of them and maybe you could just kind of walk us through what shell is saying here yeah thanks so you know shell is you know a largest portfolio player in the world they are a significant investor in like equity for getting these lng liquefaction projects off the ground so you know they're by all accounts they are an lng bull what we'd say you know and you know they, they have a, a reason to sort of you know, sell the growth prospects for uh, LNG going forward. And, you know, so the fact that they're calling, I think, a peak is a big deal. They they haven't done this before in previous outlooks. And the fact that, you know, as you pointed out, they've lowered demand by around 11, up to 11 percent, you know, is a big deal. Um, and we, we think the reason they're doing that, um, well, I think, you know, it's kind of this outlook's been more transparent, I think, than others. They sort of like laid out their assumptions that are driving this. So, I think they're reflecting like a couple of realities uh, that are, you know, causing this peak, uh, mainly, uh, you know, mature markets in 
Japan and uh, Korea are seeing, you know, due to demographics, nuclear and nuclear restarts, rising renewables uh, are starting to see uh, basically, you know, their LNG demand decline and that will continue to decline. And that's being reflected here. Uh, the other thing is, you know, Europe is probably around peak uh, LNG, you know, import usage, uh, you know, due to, uh, you know, demand destruction uh, following, you know, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So, yes, there was a big jump. But, you know, now there's a lot of investment into sort of moving away, you know, from gas uh, there, you know, with uh, renewables and hydrogen. Yeah. So I think that's sort of like why you're seeing the peak. And now what I think they're thinking now is, well, we could still have this sort of rapid uptake in, you know, LNG demand uh, out to the 2040s over the next 15 years. And that will be driven, you know, in their view by, you know, the decarbonization of China, uh, uh, emerging Asia uh, uptake. And uh, yeah, and so th that's sort of what, you know, Shell's thinking here. And that's what's, you know, I believe driving their changing views. I, I've written a lot about the various narratives uh, and trying to get it organized for listeners so they can, there's a lot of noise uh, about the energy transition and global energy trends. And so I organized it into three buckets. And the slow energy transition uh, is uh, an OPEC narrative. It's a super major narrative. Uh, the modeling that undergirds it is comes from OPEC's uh, World Oil Outlook 2045, which was released uh, last fall. And the uh, World Petroleum Congress that was in Calgary in, in September, which I reported on, was full of this slow transition. We're going to have growth to 2045, and everybody was thumping that tub as hard as they can. Then in the middle, you have fast transition, which is the International Energy Agency. And they they basically came out you know, last late last year and said, all fossil fuels, coal, oil, and gas are going to peak by 2030 and maybe even uh, sooner, depending on what happens in, in Asia. And then you have the fastest uh, school, which is represented by, you know, Kingsmill Bond and Rocky Mountain Institute, and there are others who say that uh, oil and gas have already peaked. We're at peak. We're, what we're see experiencing now is the plateau, which is generally tends to be bumpy, and there's, you know, demand and prices go up and down for a period of time before... Uh, you know, serious demand destruction sets in and then you're on the decline curve, which they think will happen uh, prior to 2030. So there's there are these three general narratives. And I would have to say that Shell clearly is in the slow transition narrative. You know, they are building the case. And I'm rambling on here a little bit, but this is a favorite story of mine. Uh, in about 2018, uh, uh, Alberta government deputy minister went as part of a delegation to New York and met with one of the big investment houses there. And and the uh, the advisor, uh, who will remain uh, nameless to protect the guilty, uh, said to the Albertans, he said, look, I don't, you know, don't tell me that I don't need to know the, the data. Give me a story. I need to sell us your story to my investors so they'll keep the money coming. So just give me the story. And the story at that time was, hey, look, we got we have the recently released climate plan and we're going to start decarbonizing our oil and gas. We're going to we're going to get our emissions down. We're going to be competitive. And the guy and the, the executive went, OK, that's the story. I can sell that to New York investors. M the money will keep flowing. And I so now when I hear narratives like Shell, I can't help but be cynical. You know, mm. how much of this is a narrative to keep investors who are now demanding capital back from oil and gas companies to keep them happy? And this is 
off topic a little bit, but I don't know what what's your take on that on my hypothesis. Uh, yeah, so you're, so to reiterate, your hypothesis is that you know uh, Shell's part of this low transition narrative because they want to justify to their investors that yeah we will you will see capital return or you will see like a return. Yeah, that's capital. part of, that's part of the narrative. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I guess that makes sense. I don't have like a specific uh, comment for it. I mean, I think part of it is you know they're portfolio players, and if you look at you know some of the data, like in I think, you know, the IEA gas quarterly, they have, you know, metrics like how, you know, the, what is it? Like sort of like a contract ratio, how many each contracts portfolio players have bought and how much they've sold. And when you look at that, I mean, the leverage of sold to bought is, you know, continually going down and they have to make this market. So if you're, you know, basically saying that you're committing to the, all this capacity, underwriting all this capacity that you talked about in Qatar and in the United States coming on and LNG Canada over the next, you know, few years. I mean, global LNG supply might grow a quarter. And a lot of that is due to your portfolio of purchases. You're going to need to make markets for the portfolio, you know, buyers. You know, they need to go out into emerging Asia, into, into China, into these areas and grow the market. So I think part of the reason they're saying this is that, yeah, they're, you know, their business sort of uh, depends on it. So, yeah. Yeah. If you look at the OPEC uh, modeling, uh, what it says is that very clearly, uh, oiling uh, fossil fuel demand in the OECD, the 20 OECD countries will peak, and it'll peak fairly quickly. But they expect rapid, rapid uh, uh, growth in demand in the emerging economies, the non-OECD economies, and that would be South uh, Asia, and and uh, you know other places like Latin America and particularly Africa. So there, that's their the base one of the major assumptions of that approach, and I can see that reflected all over Shell's outlook. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, yeah, and so I'm not not going to get into the OPEC specifics, but uh, yeah, basically, they're really banking on this emergent market in China sort of a rebound, but, you know, I think they're sort of underestimating some key barriers uh, to growing LNG there. Like we're saying, they're trying to make this market, but, uh, and, you know, in emerging economies, there is some barriers to financing. There's also the fact that, you know, LNG is just more expensive to coal. So it's going to be harder for it to pay more than a peaking role. And uh, on top of that, there's, you know, China's decarbonization policy is going to place constraints on gas demand growth and then in turn LNG imports. Um, we could go through some of those points one by one if you want. I want to start uh, with China, if you don't mind. Okay. And, and, I've, and I've had enough analysts on and economists on recently about uh, China's energy markets. And the takeaway from all of those interviews is that China has decided that its uh, energy future lies in clean energy, which will be a lot of wind and solar, some hydro and some nuclear with coal as a as a peaker plants and backups. Uh, given how dependent the Chinese economy is on industry and manufacturing, it does not want to be caught short. Uh, and so it's it's prepared uh, you know down the road, it will burn coal if it has to to keep the lights on. They've made that very clear. And there's almost no role that I can see for more gas. Gas is about three percent of its, uh, power sector, fuel, 
And I, I just don't see that increasing. Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think that's accurate. Uh, I mean, the 14th five-year plan, it positions coal as like the center of energy security in China. I mean, after they've had um, an LNG, they had a gas shortage in I think around 2017, 18, while they were trying to encourage, you know, natural gas usage uh, in like the building sector, sort of a coal to gas switching as part of its third, you know, the 13th five-year plan. And in addition, they um, there was also this, you know, basically, you know, rising geopolitical tensions, plus like, you know, supply disruptions that have been happening with LNG around the world have sort of, you know, had them thinking, China thinking, well, and electricity security is national security. So we need to, to make sure we have energy in our own hands or have control over it. So coal, they produce, you know, 90% of the coal they consume. Uh, and if you even look at the source of their imports, they're countries that, are, you know, they're more or less aligned or non-aligned with uh, Russia, Mongolia, and I believe Indonesia supply about 90% of those imports. And, you know, they're really investing in, you know, upping their productive capacity uh, so that, you know, they could not have, you know, coal supply dis disruptions like they did in 2021. Uh, yeah, so they are looking for coal. They're make, looking to make their coal fleet more flexible to provide, you know, this ramping up and down, you know, sort of reliability that you hear uh, everyone say that natural gas needs to play uh, on, towards an energy transition. So there is a slide in the LNG outlook, Shell's sort of LNG outlook, that sort of says that, uh, you know, renewables supported by gas reduce, you know, the, you, you know, coal, the role of coal in the power sector. And with China, that's, it's pretty much, you can word it like renewables supported by coal reduce the role of gas because, you know, they're not really turning to gas. Uh, they, uh, one thing about China is, yeah, sure, they're like a large producer of gas. They produce, you know, the fourth largest producer of gas. They produce more than Canada. They have a policy in place to limit basically their import dependence on gas to under 50% in their, you know, their current uh, gas development plan uh, released in 2023. And also, yeah, they, if you look at the suppliers of LNG also, they're not as aligned uh, in terms of those who are growing. Uh, I mean, the United States, Australia, Canada, these are not as, you know, like strategically aligned with what China wants. So, you know, it makes more sense for them to, uh, you know, basically put, you know, as they, as, uh, you know, President Xi Jinping said, uh, putting the uh, rice bowl in your own hands, which is, you know, cool. Yeah, I, I think that um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine changed uh, a lot of countries' perceptions of energy security. And whatever uh, the extent to which they can generate uh, that, uh, sorry, to the extent to which they can create and control uh, energy domestically uh, lessens their energy insecurity. And so there's a, you know, wind and solar are natural for that because they're on your domestic soil. But my, my perception, uh, Christopher, is that those of us in the West uh, missed, lar largely missed the pivot that China started in 2020 with its two carbons policy, and the change in thinking that came in with the the uh, the current uh, five year plan, and we're still operating to a large extent on old assumptions that really are no longer true in China. Yeah, I, that that could be the case. Like uh, now, you are seeing. I think we're starting to see over the last like four years, 
uh, significant deployment of renewable energy. I mean, I mentioned that China's a world leader in natural gas production. Well, it's the world leader in clean energy production. It produces solar panels, wind turbines, uh, you know, batteries, you know, for the world and, and for itself. And it is deploying these at such a significant scale. I mean, their plan, if you look at like, you know, research by Carbon Brief and, and you know, other uh, energy you know, institutes like that. I mean, they, they're sort of saying that they believe China could through its renewable deployment peak emissions, uh, you know, earlier than their target of 2030, uh, you know, sometime maybe around 20, 2028 or so. So, you know, they are moving ahead towards, uh, you know, peaking emissions uh, before 2030 and moving on to carbon neutrality by 2060. I do think that some of the narrative is missing that they're doing that. I think a lot of the narrative centers around, you know, their big uptake in coal capacity increases that, you know, they're building out. However, uh, that sort of misses that, you know, they're hoping for these coal units to provide flexibility and energy security and reliability. They they put in place, they're putting in place like uh, capacity uh, payment mechanisms to ensure that these coal units can remain profitable as, you know, their hours are going to decline below like 4,000 hours a year, uh, you know, and probably be unprofitable without these payments, you know, due to the rise in, uh, you know, solar energy, solar and uh, wind that they're yeah. deploying domestically. You know. I, I think that's really key. And to put this back into the LNG context, the the really what we're talking about here is in the emerging economies, and I guess to some extent in the uh, in the uh, in the uh, the rich economies as well, is what fuels the power sector. Is it going to be more wind and solar and batteries going forward? Well, yes, in, in China, that's certainly the case. Uh, and in the OECD countries, as OPEC argues, yes, we're seeing more solar and and uh, and a decline in coal and though a rise in gas. So there's this, how does that balance shift between the various continents? Because they're not all the same. And we see, for instance, in India, you know, big build out of of coal as well, and so that kind of fuels the the bearish uh, companies and the bearish analysts, and and or sorry, the bullish is what I meant to say, because they point to those markets as uh, as tremendous growth opportunities for LNG, but LNG is expensive, and at the end of the day, these emerging economies they pick what's cheapest, and a lot of times now that's solar. Uh, all by itself, or even if you attach storage uh, to all or some of it. And I just don't see LNGs, the economics of LNG being competitive in the power sector. Yeah, like I, I think we're starting to see, like since, at least since 2021, and yeah, with the, you know, Russia's full-scale invasion there in 2022, uh, a lot of economies in emerging Asia start, you know, to feel this way. Um yeah, we already talked about how China is, you know, basically pivoting away, you know, centering its, you know, power sector around coal and renewables. You know, gas is only about three percent there and has been for a decade, so it's growing, but you know, pretty slowly. But when you start looking at other emerging Asia, like, you know, there was a you start LNG was cheap for a while, uh, but then around twenty twenty since twenty twenty one, it got really volatile, and you know, some economies, you know, had not just expense issues, but like full supply disruptions, like in Pakistan, where, you know, uh, basically portfolio players or traders were, you know, shifting their supplies away to Europe. 
And, you know, they were left with power shortages. And, you know, Pakistan is committed in the last year to basically never building another LNG to power LNG to power facility. Um, then you have, you know, places like, you know, Bangladesh, where you have, you know, the government needing to sort of subsidize some of these uh, or, you know, basically pay for, uh, you know, these expensive imports. And it still hasn't paid, you know, that import bill. Uh yeah, so that's obviously expensive. If, and if you just look at like the recent uh, contract that uh, India signed with Qatar, um, I think it's around, you know, with current Brent prices, I think it's around $10 per MMBTU. That's about double what, you know, coal would be around there, you know, if you're going to produce it or import it, you know, from Indonesia or produce it domestically or, or, or import it from Australia. So, yeah, it isn't really competitive with coal for that base load power source. So, like, really, if it's going to happen, it's going to be more of a peaking role. But that's not really how it's being advertised by, uh, you know, a lot of proponents. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's, you know, in your report, you touch upon a couple of uh, Asian countries, uh, Vietnam and the Philippines in particular, that, you know, LNG is has, is out of favor at the moment uh, for some various reasons. Maybe you could uh, tell us about those. Yeah, so this isn't... Uh so much about like the prices you know these are the emerging lng um import uh Im importers they were sort of you know they sort of been labeled as, as sort of you know future growth markets due to you know significant economic growth growing population that sort of thing but um you know just last year they did commission their first lng facilities both philippines and vietnam so a lot you know a lot of proponents have been you know happy about that but really, uh, Vietnam hasn't been able to secure like an offtake agreement with like EVN for to offtake the power, like basically a power purchase agreement, you know, so that because basically the volatility in the prices uh, make it so that there's disagreement over how, you know, that fuel cost should be passed through, which, you know, if it is, it's going to be pretty expensive for consumers. And if it isn't, it's going to be pretty expensive for the utility, which, you know, then the government's going to have to figure out. So in Vietnam, you know, there is you know, they're not really expecting, uh, you know, a facility to come on tied to their, like a power facility tied to their LNG facility to come on for a few years, uh, in maybe 2027, I think I read recently. Uh, Philippines, you kind of have a similar story with, um, they had sort of like a power supply agreement in place for one, you know, one of these LNG import facilities, uh, you know, to offtake the power. But then, um, you know, after, you know, the volatility that happened following you know, Russia's invasion there, you basically have, uh, you know, renegotiations about how this, you know, how to deal with this. So it was one thing to have a fixed price agreement uh, in the old days when LNG was cheap for several years in a row. But now seeing that, you know, reality of the potential volatility is sort of scared, you know, scared, I think scared people. And they're sort of, so before that sort of like, so ultimately you need a long-term contract, uh, into the LNG import terminal to get that certainty before you could get these offtake agreements that are also long-term in nature, like a power purchase agreement for the power producers. So a couple of these shoes need to drop. Uh, perhaps uh, the looming oversupply uh, mid-decade will help, you know, provide, you know, incentive to make those contracts. But we still, without those contracts, it's going to be difficult to see uh, growth really taking off in those two countries. I want to get your take on the OPEC assumption 
that the emerging economies, some of which we just talked about, but we haven't talked about Africa, we haven't talked about Latin America. But it seems to me that given the uh, emphasis on price in those uh, economies and also on energy security, that imported anything, any kind of imported uh, fuel, even imported electricity, if you're talking about transmission across borders, uh, is not going to be looked upon favorably. That, that I mean, in some cases, it's high cost. In some cases, it's security. some cases, there are other domestic issues. But this explosion of fossil fuel demand in those economies is not materializing now. It's not likely to materialize in the future because the costs, in part because the cost of renewables continues to fall. I think now we're talking about $24 at the bottom end of the levelized cost of energy estimates for for solar is $24 a megawatt hour. I mean, it, it just is the cheapest electricity you can find. Is is that a reasonable hypothesis that the that the falling costs and rising efficiency of renewables is simply going to be more than LNG can surmount? Um, I don't know if I'd go that far. Uh, I'd say I'd, I'd rephrase a lot of the things you're saying, and maybe it's agreeing with you. But uh, really, I think all these uh, emerging economies, particularly any that are import importing a lot of energy, you're going to look at any means necessary. Um, so yeah, you're, you're going to look at a domestic endowment endowments. I mean, places like Singapore are starting to re, you know, relook at nuclear. They're starting to look at you know geothermal resources. If you know some new advancements in geothermal technology could help them, um, they're also looking at you know imports through the Aegean grid. Um, but you know uh, there are um, issues there, like you're talking about, in terms of uh, will you want to export power depend on imported power uh, due to energy security. There's also issues about. Um, accounting uh let's say you are a country uh who's going to export green power to another country you might want credit for that green power uh you know so there's some issues there with who gets credit for the reductions uh but but anyway what am I, but ultimately um yeah what were we sorry trailed off there well, it, it sounds it sounds like ultimately the uncertainty around the evolution of the global power sectors uh, doesn't augur well for LNG. It doesn't make the case that that Shell has made in the past, and now partly, I guess, that's why they've lowered their forecast by eleven percent. But the you know there's there are these competing views of the energy future and i don't i can see you know there's going to be a role for gas and for lng out to 2050 out to 2100 but i just don't see the the fever in the uh feverish demand in the developing countries that the you know companies like shell see and and uh, opec sees yeah like i think with lng like going back to like start of the conversation i think i mean they are the market given the role of the portfolio players they're the market makers i think so i mean that needs to happen to get lng at a price that's competitive enough to make major displacement uh in the power sector uh, as we've been saying but having said that yes uh 
some countries are going to have policies that, you know, related to energy security that may just constrain this development already. Well, I mean, we kind of touched on China being an, an example. They even have a sort of a, they drafted a gas utilization policy last year that really aims to constrain the growth of gas going forward so that it's managed and, you know, not import dependence doesn't rise too much for the for the reasons we're, we've kind of highlighted already. Well, let's wrap up our conversation with uh, the uh, discussion of the likelihood of expansion on Canada's West Coast. So we've got a couple of small projects uh, like wood fiber, uh, but the big one is is LNG Canada, and Shell has mused, well, LNG Canada has mused openly about doing a phase two after phase one is completed uh, this year. And one of the reasons is because they have uh, a tremendous amount of cheap uh, to produce gas in the in northeastern British Columbia. So if you've got this wonderful gas resource, uh, that lowers your costs. And, and, and they think, uh, you know, it's going to be very competitive. But I also interviewed one of your colleagues um, oh, a couple of years ago who made the, the argument that, you know, the, the cost of doing an LNG plant on, you know, up in Kitimat and places like that is the capital cost is twice that of the uh, U.S. Gulf Coast. And at the end of the day, the operating savings that come with the colder climate in British Columbia and maybe, maybe uh, cheaper gas or at least competitive gas uh, just don't provide enough of a competitive advantage for large scale LNG investment on the coast. And which is why we're seeing we're not seeing a final investment decisions on many of the projects uh, that are uh, floating around out there. Would you share, do you share that view or do you have a different view? Um, I mean, that's, you're saying it was a couple of years ago. It sounds probably consistent with where things were then. Um, I think what we're seeing now is with the, you know, U.S. LNG export pause, like sort of a drive towards an acceleration of, you know, from uh, not just industry, but uh, also government, like uh, Minister Wilkinson saying that, you know, there's a case for Canadian expansion if we can prove that it's displacing uh, you know, uh, more carbon intensive fuels like coal and um, particularly coal, but also oil. And, um, you know, so is there is that so I, I mean, just looking at it from that angle, the demand angle, not not all the cost angles. I'm not sure if you can make that case. I mean, we've sort of talked about in this discussion how you, you know, in, in China, you're not really going to displace, uh, you know, coal there. They're not looking for because they're not looking for gas to provide energy security or to back up their renewable deployment. They're, they're going to reduce coal through their own renewable deployment. Um, and, you know, in emerging Asia, there's other barriers uh, there to overcome. So I, I think I would just sort of focus more on the Asia demand story, which says, you know, there could be limits to this. Um, the other thing to look at would just be how, what are the contracts doing for these facilities? I mean, I know that LNG Canada phase one has backing and has, you know, pretty experienced marketers, uh, you know, merchant utilities and that sort of thing. Um, and I believe uh, wood fiber is completely, B, you know, is all BP, I think. Um, I think out of all the other facilities, there's really only one contract signed thus far. So I think that might be a signal that uh, the demand isn't there yet, you know, in Asia. And, and and that they have, or that they haven't made the market yet. And I think that's more important than whatever, you know, the costs assumptions are now. I, I do think that, I mean, the main issue was probably getting that initial header pipeline CGL in uh, once, and I believe it could be ramped up past phase 
LNG Canada phase one to like a higher capacity. So maybe there's some uh, room for, you know, the brownfield expansions or whatever there or another LNG, but I mean, Canada, but I think you need to look at who's under, do they have the contracts to underpin it? And when they do, I think, you know, then you could say there's a case for it, but right now we're not seeing that. Okay. So the, uh, the Canadian uh, bearers, uh, argue for, you know, they, they say there is going to be higher demand in, in Asia, and they point to all the other com uh, countries that are building out liquefaction uh, capacity as evidence of that. Uh, and But your your point here is that uh, Shell hasn't made the market yet. It might It might do that, but so we'll see where they get uh, customers and, and get long-term contracts. And then secondly, so we have this, we're suspicious of the uh, forecast growth for LNG demand in, in Asia. And those two things together are maybe dampening some of the enthusiasm. Uh, we'll, we'll have to, I guess, monitor those going ahead to see if there's a, a change that would support an expansion of LNG on the West Coast or not support it. But it, 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 was it fair to say that right now we're kind of on the cusp, it could go either way? Yeah, I'm not really sure. Like, I. I... I don't know if we're on the cusp because I think the other thing to mention is there's this looming oversupply happening that I think everyone has started to sort of acknowledge. Like Aifa had a, a LNG outlook release last year that called this uh, looming glut uh, starting to happen around 2025, 2026 going forward. Um, and I think, you know, now a lot of other, uh, you know, I guess not just, energy interested layman but like a lot of people are starting to acknowledge this uh even the i think the lng bulls are starting to realize oh there's a lot of oversupply so it's not just about the demand story or making the market it's making trying to uh shove more lng onto the water in a period where prices are going to be lower uh profitability will go down margins will go down uh you're starting to see uh you know a future where one of the largest LNG importers is going to also become a reseller. That's Japan. You know, they're looking at, they're over-contracted. Uh, you know, Jera is trying to make markets in Southeast Asia to cultivate demand there to resell their volumes. So it, it's potential, it's potentially you not just competing, uh, you know, not just trying to find these demand markets, but competing with other people uh, on the margin, you know, which I don't know. Like, so I think that's, that could make it uh, less likely, let's say, uh, not on the cusp, but short of the cusp. There's looming oversupply, and that could be another thing driving, um, you know, people, making people more hesitant to, you know, underpinning these facilities. However, uh, after we finish this podcast, maybe there'll be an announcement uh, <laughs> of, uh, of an FID. You never know, but yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Well, look, Christopher, this has been very insightful, and uh, you've given us uh, some insight into what's going on in emerging Asian markets, with, which I think is absolutely key to understanding what what the energy future looks like, at least for the next five or 10 years. So thank you very much for this. No, thanks a lot, Mark. I appreciate it a lot. Mm -hmm.